You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, forward, by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the fabulous Feinstein's 54 Below. Before we get started this evening, just a polite reminder, please take this moment to silence your cell phones. Also, there is no flash photography, please. Welcome to the Fine Science 54 Below podcast, where we take you behind the scenes at Broadway's Supper Club. I'm Nella Vera, the club's director of marketing, and today's guest is the legendary Charles Bush, who is continuing his tradition of celebrating New Year's Eve at Fine Science 54 Below in a free-spirited evening of song and stories. His longtime musical director, Tom Judson, will join Charles, as well as the delightful comedian Ashley Austin Morris. Charles Bush is the author and star of such plays as The Confession of Lily Dare, The Divine Sister, Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, The Tribute Artist, and of course, The Tale of the Allergist Wife, which ran for nearly two years on Broadway and received a Tony Award nomination for Best Play. He wrote and starred in film versions of his plays, Psycho Beach Party and Die, Mommy, Die, the latter of which won him the Best Performance Award at the Sundance Film Festival. Mr. Bush is the recipient of a Special Drama Desk Award for career achievement as both performer and playwright. He is a two-time Manhattan Cabaret Award winner, a Bistro Award honoree, and has performed his cabaret act in many cities, including San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, London, Paris, and New York's Jazz at Lincoln Center American Songbook Series. Charles, welcome to the podcast. Well, hey there, Nella. It's so funny when you hear your credits read. Wow, that sounds really cool. <laughs> it's incredibly impressive. And I'm a huge fan of yours from way back when, because I'm old enough to have seen so many of your shows. We're so excited to have you perform back at Feinstein's 54 below on New Year's Eve. How does it feel to be back on stage in front of a live audience? Well, it's going to be really my first cabaret appearance doing my whole show for, I guess, in over two years. Oh, really. wow. Yeah, I sang one song a week ago at a Broadway Cares fundraising event. So I thought it was important to do that for numerous reasons, but one self-serving one was just to get over a little bit of stage fright from just not being active and stuff for so long. So yeah, so it felt good. I'm really looking forward to it, and I, and it's just going to be a very sweet evening being back with Tom Judson, and then I just adore Ashley Morris. She's the funniest comedian and a wonderful actress. I call her my daughter, it's somewhat facetiously and also very sentimentally. I met her because she played my daughter in the New York production of Die, Mommy, Die on stage. And she was right out of college. And we just clicked. 
and she's been such a part of my life. And for this, my return to the stage, I thought I, I can't do it without her. And uh, so it's, it's going to be a really fun night. I'm so looking forward to it. Fantastic. What can audiences expect from the show? It's going to be a bit of a smorgasbord of old material and, and new material. Tom and I had actually put together a whole new show of music from the movies, and we had all string of tour dates, and they were all were canceled, you know, to COVID uh, a year ago spring. So we're finally going to be able to do some of that material. It's a potpourri of different things and stories. My shows have a lot of talking. I'm as much a raconteur as I am a singer, maybe more so in a way. So a lot of things have been going on <laughs> in my life, even though I may not have been on the cabaret bandstand. Uh, I've been busy and had some pretty wild adventures. Yeah. Were you doing online performing during COVID or were you just taking up other hobbies or how are you keeping busy? Well, actually, I mean, it's kind of wild. My longtime theater collaborator, Carl Andrus, who's directed just about almost all my plays for the past 25 years. During COVID, we Skyped a screenplay together and then uh, and we produced and directed it. Oh, my and, goodness. Yeah, we, we made this whole feature film and we shot it largely on sound stages up near Newburgh, New York, but then also on the streets of the West Village where I live. A year ago, October, before there was a vaccine, it was nuts. And I think we really were among the very first union-approved TV or film projects to be done. And so, oh, we had just so many wacky, strict COVID protocols, but they worked. And I have to say, although our rather elf and COVID policeman on the set, we basically wanted a slug about twice a day. <laughs> he did his job, and there were about 80 of us involved on this movie, and no one got sick. Amazing. So, so he was really diligent and did his job. So anyway, so it, it was thrilling. So the movie has been on the film festival circuit, but I have wonderful news that just this week we actually signed the contract with the distributor. <gasps> and so it'll be out and however they put out movies nowadays. Fantastic. You know, yeah. Streaming, oh, that's exciting. Thrilling. It was so much fun. And yeah, I haven't made that many movies and, and it had been a long time since I'd made one. I was feeling very Gloria Swanson and Sunset Boulevard, that I'd never make another picture. <laughs> and then I guess that's the thing about, about life, darling, is just you never know, do you, what's yeah. going to be in the corner, disaster or good fortune. So you both took something that was a, yeah, a terrible thing and actually turned it into a positive and created something oh. wonderful. Yeah, yeah and, and in a way, you know, uh, writing with Carl, via Skype, because he lives in Connecticut and I'm here in town, I think we probably got more done because if we were in the same room, we'd be doing more <laughs> yakking and gossiping and fishing and eating. And, and somehow when you're stuck there on the Skype, it, yeah. you know, when we work for two hour stretch, we're, we're working. Yeah. Yeah. And no. It was very sweet too. It was very sweet just that for the actors involved and we wrote so many of the parts for specific people, you know, friends and performers that we just really admired and just were offering these parts. And I think they were so thrilled to get out of the house and just be offered a job in a movie. And a number of these people were in Broadway, happened to be in Broadway shows, which they wouldn't have been available. So yeah. we just exploited the pandemic for our <laughs> benefit. 
Yeah, no, it's great. And I'm sure people were thrilled to have something to do yeah. other than sit at home. Yeah, it was kind of funny when we were shooting. My friend Julie Halston is uh, my stage buddy. She, uh, <laughs> she co-stars in the movie with me. And it's kind of a, a bit of a buddy film in a way. It's called, the, I should give the title, it's called The Sixth Real. Sixth Real. Yeah, sixth Real. <laughs> and anyway, we were shooting right outside my building, in fact. And we were right in the middle of acting the scene. And some old village curmudgeon old man walks right between us and sticks his finger in my face, goes, mask. I said, can't you see I'm performing? I'm I'm acting. Oh, it was crazy. Crazy. And I would expect no less of a village curmudgeon. No, there are so many village curmudgeons. That, and they, oh, we, we, I'm going to say it was kind of a, I think it's funny, but it wasn't funny to them. I play a kind of a person who's a bit down at his heels. And so we found a really kind of crummy building in my neighborhood. Tenement <laughs> uses the exterior of my movie apartment. And it's in the plot. It's condemned. Oh, no. We had permission from the, the building management of this apartment house. So we distressed the outside of the building even worse. We had sign on the front door saying, condemned, all tenants must be out by Monday. <laughs> you know, orange mesh around. I love it. But the silly building management of their building never notified the tenants. Yeah. So it was like the, the War of the Worlds in a radio show. I think these people, all, these old people thought they had to be out by Monday. Oh, no. Another old village curmudgeon, this is the female kind, comes over while we're acting and says, I write for the Huffington Post. I write for the Huffington Post. And you know, I'm going to expose what you've been doing. Oh, I, I try to explain it. You're in the scene right now. We're, we're, this, this is Mrs. Halston and I were, you know, Katie Huffington is about to make her entrance. Oh, it, it was nuts. It was crazy, but that's I love part of the things I love about the village living here. For <laughs> yeah, forty years. That is hilarious. Well, can't wait to see it. I'm a huge, in addition to being a fan of yours, Julie Halston fan. We had so many wonderful people in this movie: Patrick Page, Tim Wings Daly, Wow, Margaret Cho, who I'd never worked with before, and I oh, was wow. And Margaret's in it, and she lives in L.A., and so she, you know, she had a quarantine, stuck in a room with her her little dog for two weeks before she could walk out the door. Yeah. That. Who else? Oh gosh, just um, D. D. Hody, uh, Katie Huffman, Heather McRae. It's wonderful Broadway people. Wow, amazing! I love it. Yeah. Can't wait to see it. So yeah, streaming soon to all of our homes. Maybe in a theater at some point. Yes, that's what they promise. It's a strange thing to know that movies are being released simultaneously. And I want to go to the theater to support it, but it's so convenient to watch it at home, especially now with big televisions. Everybody has a big TV. So it's like. And the the screens in the movie theaters have gotten smaller. So they're almost about the size. Yeah. 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 As I said before, I'm a huge fan of your work. I also love, love drag. And I have a two-part question. Most drag that people know is cabaret. What inspired you first to start performing in drag? And second, what inspired you to write full-length plays about these larger-than-life glamorous women? Oh, my. Well, first, I should say, though, everything I do is always the opposite. And, of course, now drag through RuPaul's Drag Race is so big. And I actually chose about five years ago to de-drag my cabaret act. yes. You know, I read about people, so the great bravery that it took for them to decide to 
do drag. And for me, it was the opposite. It was, it took a lot of courage for me to just dispense with the wigs and costume and makeup for my act. Although actually what I call out of drag, some people would say was drag because I don't know, I got so much, wear so much jewelry and mm-hmm. I make up on stage. Yeah. I felt with cabaret for myself. I never completely understood why I was in drag when I was performing my shows at 54 Below or these other clubs because I was introduced as myself as Charles Bush and then proceeded to tell true stories about my life and then sing Sondheim or Joni Mitchell. I I didn't really understand intellectually why I was doing that except for the fact that I'd had this long career playing female characters in Mm -hmm. Plays and movies. So, my audience, I thought, expected. In fact, I have a friend who, when I asked him, I said, Do I dare? Do I dare get out of drag? And, and he said, I don't know. Because if I went to see you and you weren't in drag, it would be like going to Disneyland and finding out the Space Mountain was closed. So thank you very much for the encouragement. But I, <laughs> I decided to just try it. And I really liked it because I find for cabaret, I think it's important to be your most authentic self and yeah. have few veils in place. I like that. And so I felt that for a while there, even though I was so comfortable in drag and just being so comfortable with my own androgyny, it was okay. But I still thought there was just a, just a little bit of a mask between me and the audience. I wanted to be just as honest as possible. So I thought it was a good thing. But it didn't mean that I was not ever going to do drag because I think since then I've done like probably three more plays mm-hmm. playing female characters I, and in the sixth reel I play a male character but it's a wacky caper comedy and so several times Julie and I get into disguises and so I, I'm always in disguise as a lady mm-hmm. yes. anyway I didn't answer any of your questions <laughs> how did I do it it's so ingrained in my personality and who I am I just was always very in touch with just this rather androgynous aspect of myself. It, before I actually did drag, in my first eight years of my performing career as a solo performer, doing solo theater pieces where I would play, there'd be a very complicated narrative, and I'd play all the characters, male and female, mm-hmm. and I didn't change costume at all. The magic of what I was trying to achieve was that without having any props or costumes, I would just go back and forth between all these characters and that the audience would hopefully feel that they'd come away seeing a whole cast of characters when it was just little old me. So, so I was so used to playing female characters without any drag. And then when I started doing shows down on the Lower East Side at this place called the Limbo Lounge in the mid-80s, I just thought it'd be fun to... I wrote this piece where I was going to play a ageless vampire actress, and I thought, well, I'd like to look like the character I'm playing. And so it'd be, I thought it'd be kind of fun to do drag for one weekend. Mm-hmm. That that would be my career for the next 40 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just was so comfortable for me. And during the pandemic, Carl and I did about seven different Zoom play readings, some of them, and I think almost all of them, I played female characters. Sometimes I was in drag, sometimes not. It's just, it's not about physical transformation for me. It's so deep within me. I don't even really completely understand it, but there's a mystery in all of this. And part of my mystery is that somehow I'm just so comfort for me to go from male to female is just like walking into another door. It's not a big transformation. 
So if I decide to wear a wig and a 1940s costume to look exactly like the character, that's nice, but it's not necessary for me. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting terrible long answers here. Like no, gonna... those, it's amazing. I love what you yeah, said. Yeah. And you did mention like RuPaul's Drag Race, and I find now it's so commercial, and I wonder what you think about that. I mean, I guess in a sense it's just an evolution of the form, but I remember going when I was younger to places like Universal Bar and seeing those, the more old-timey, that I felt very gritty, authentic drag queens doing their show and then you'd have dinner or drinks and they'd just <laughs> pop out a show in the middle of it. And it seems now it's much more polished, much more commercial. You know. Well, I mean, I think that something like RuPaul, he's given the possibility to submit to a generation of drag performers that there are, is a commercial possibility for them that maybe there's not, I guess that's really in a way, one of the great gifts that he's provided is that if a young person wants to express themselves through a drag persona, their dreams don't have to end with just performing in a bar somewhere that they could be Bianca Del Rio and sell out a stadium or different people like that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them are... Oh, absolutely. Very successful. Yeah, very in demand. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, honestly, I'm this old person who just doesn't leave their apartment that much even pre-pandemic. So I suspect that there still are bars in every city where they're rough-edged drag queens flying <laughs> trade and being very edgy and outrageous and transgressive. So I think it's all there. But what is marvelous is that there is they can have a realistic dream of yeah. commercial success. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. And yeah, they, all of the performers that have been on his show do have followings and they're able to yeah. have bookings. Yeah. I, mean, I like to think in my way, certainly in the theater, and then maybe because you know, I've made a couple of movies too, I'd like to think that I've given hope to younger people to think, well, oh, so he has made a career writing female characters for himself and has been in the, I guess you call it mainstream. I don't know what that really means, but so why not me? I mean, I wrote on this, I stood on the shoulders of other people before me, Charles Ludlam mm -hmm. and Charles Pierce. And I'm sure they would have told me, I did this, and get, if I open the door, be careful, I'll slam it on your fingers. But, you know, <laughs> but... That's how I sometimes feel, too, when people say, you open the door for me. But it's all a continuum. Yeah, of course. I benefited from their work, and then there are people who benefit from yes. the, the doors that I opened. Yeah, I think you're so right. And it is, like I said, it is a continuum. And I love thinking of it that way, um, and an evolution. And then we have the legends in the field, which are you and your generation, and then this newer, younger performers that are kind of doing different things and exploiting new media in a different way as well. My other question was about when you started writing plays, did you start with the female character, create her and then write a plot for her? Or were you thinking, I'm going to write this madcap kind of story about these vampires and then find your characters in the plot? My dream from early childhood was to be on stage. That was the goal. And even though I was writing full-length plays by the age of 11, I still didn't really think that I was going to be a writer. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to be on stage. And then when I rather realistically saw 
particularly when I went to Northwestern University as a theater major. And you know, I just could see that I was never going to be able to have a commercial career as an actor. I was just too, particularly in the mid-70s, before there were roles written for androgynous young men. I, I just knew it wasn't going to happen. And, and when I started being exposed to more downtown theater and writer-performers like Charles Ludlam and saw the possibilities that I should write a role for myself that is unique to my talents, that I, rather than try to fit myself into something that I'll never win at, what is it about me that I think is special? And what is it that I have to offer? It's these female characters that, that in a certain sense, I've been improvising to my friends for all these years. And when by the time I was 17, I could do the Seven Ages of Betty Davis. Mm -hmm. But I thought, well, maybe that's what I should be doing on stage instead of trying for something else. But yeah, it's always just writing. The, ultimately, I think when I write a play that I'm going to be in, because sometimes I've written things that I'm not in, it usually starts off with the kind of character I'd like to play. What sort of woman do I want to play? And is it inspired by a, a movie genre? Oh, wouldn't it be fun to be Norma Shearer in an anti-Nazi war melodrama? Oh, wouldn't it be interesting for me to play a 1950s movie actress who's dealing with the Red Scare in Hollywood? So it usually starts off with who would I like to play, but when that itself suggests the plot. Because mm -hmm. you know I mean? it's not just like, oh, I want to play a movie actress. Wouldn't it be interesting to be a movie actress who's involved in a Red Scare melodrama? Mm. So it's that kind of thing. Or like the last play I did before the pandemic was called The Confession of Lily Dare. And that was very much that I loved. I'm a sucker for old movies where the actress ages and goes from it's a tour de force where they, they go from girlhood to maturity to old age. I always want always wanted to do that. And I also have a great fondness for old movies that are about uh, mother love and mothers who've sacrificed for their children and movies like Madame X and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So, so yeah, so I, I wanted to do that kind of role. And then what it actually is kind of interesting, I guess, is that at this point, really for the past, well, I guess always, but I know what the movie genre is or the theatrical genre that I'm paying homage to and who I want to play. And then I usually write a list of actors or friends of mine who I just want to hang out with. <laughs> and it's going to be fun to work with and be in the room with and spend so much time with. And then I think about, well, how would Jennifer, let's see, how does she fit into this plot? If I'm doing Cleopatra, if I'm going to play Cleopatra, now Jennifer, she has to have a really good part. Jennifer Van Dyke. And I think, well, gee, except for Cleopatra, there aren't too many female characters. It's really a male-dominated story except for her. So how do I give a great part to Jennifer? Well, she has a certain kind of Catherine Hepburn kind of androgyny to her. So I'll have her play the Octavian. Oh, and she could also play his sister mm -hmm. in a dual role. That's how my mind works. And I find women more interesting than men generally. So uh, I'm kind of a female-centric writer. And again, so with like Cleopatra, this I guess we did that about six years ago. So, okay, well, she's got those two handmaidens that in that Shakespeare didn't do very much with <laughs> and I do better. Uh, and, and I'd like to write those parts for Ashley Morris and Jen Cody. Yeah. How do I make them better? So that, Oh, well, what if they really had their own subplot? The two handmaidens are in a lesbian romance and all sorts of beef. And so, you know, that's how I operate. Amazing. Amazing. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A thought popped into my head before, and I don't think that because drag is so mainstream now, part of our culture, the young people don't understand that what you were doing at the time was indeed so groundbreaking and subversive in a way. I know your work isn't political, but just the act of you being on stage, being who you were expressing yourself was a huge game changer. And at the time, inspiration for so many other performers and not even performers, just people who wanted to express themselves in a good way. I think young people that I talk to don't understand as much how important that was because they've grown up in a culture where they are freer to express themselves and they see drag yeah. mainstream. So yeah, it's interesting. When we did Lily Dare two years ago, it was through um, primary stages theater nonprofit and they insisted it's part of their charter that we had to do three student matinees for mm-hmm. um, high school kids and I was kind of, oh, God, really? Is this play really appropriate for them? I mean, must must we? But they turned out to be really, out of the three, one group was, like, so bored. I think they felt like they were watching a TCM at their grandmother's house. But the other two were quite lively. But what was interesting about all three in the talk pack that we had to do afterwards, not one person raised their hand and asked me why I was in drag or why I was playing the female character. And I thought that was interesting. I thought, wow, this is a generation that's just so, particularly, I guess, in urban New York, just didn't occur to them that it was anything odd that the lead was played by a fellow. Yeah, they're comfortable with fluidity. Yeah, I think they are, which is interesting. But when I was starting out, it's so funny. You know, I just honestly did not have any concern or even for the most fleeting second think that, oh, oh gosh, this is kind of edgy for me to do, or should I do this? And I think for one thing, I lack the fear in my head of the thought of what will people think? I've just never really had that. I don't know whether it's the way I was brought up or genetic or something. I'm very grateful for that because, you know, that's certainly put the brakes on so many people's creativity. Mm-hmm. What will people think? And that never occurred to me. I think for one thing, because I saw the reality, I'm a very pragmatic person. I'm not a fantasy queen. And so I saw that, oh, in 1973, 74, 75, or when I got out of college in 76, I thought, I'm just not going to have a career. There were no, there wasn't Torch Song Trilogy or The Inheritance or Buyer and Seller or Love, Valor, Compassion or any of these 
Angels in America, any of these plays, no, nobody had written these plays yet. There were no role models, no, oh, someday I could play that part. I'm right for that. There was no right. part I, I could, wanted to play or, or knew I would play. So I never thought about, oh, if I do drag, will that hurt my commercial career? possibilities, mm -hmm. which is, I think that would be the fear that a yeah. lot of young actors would have. Yeah, well, I, I better not do that because I, I knew I, I would have no career anyway. <laughs> so the only chance I had was to be a downtown yeah. actor, playwright, performance artist. So I want to ask you about the tale of the allergist wife. I was working at Manhattan Theater Club when you did oh, yeah. that. Yeah, I was a baby theater admin person working oh. in fundraising, actually, at the time. With Deborah Waxman? Yeah. Yeah, she yeah. was in marketing. So I was in development with Andy Hemmingson. He was my boss. But I'd love to hear about how that came about. You were not in it. And we all fully, when it was announced, we all assumed that you would be in it. And of course, we had the amazing, wonderful Linda Lavin. But also, how did that come about? Was that, did MTC approach you? Did you come up with the play and approach them? And I'm so curious about the evolution because, like I said, we all expected you to write yeah. it for yourself. And then it turned out to be a huge, enormous hit. You could have been in it, but generously gave that part to somebody <laughs> else. And it was a fantastic performance as well. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Well, you know, I think this is, it just does show that luck or opportunity sometimes is part of it. It's a step-by-step -step thing. I was perfectly happy with my career as a downtown playwright. Each show that we did, we would start it at a nonprofit. I worked a lot through the WPA theater, which was, was a wonderful nonprofit theater. And then we transferred them all commercially. So I was perfect. I never really thought I didn't have a big dream. Someday I've got to get on Broadway. And <laughs> I never thought that way. But anyway, I had the opportunity to write the book to a, a musical called The Green Heart. And my friend Allison Fraser had she had optioned this short story, and she kind of put together this project with her husband, the late Rusty McGee, writing the score. And then Ken Elliott, who produced and directed all of my early plays, the idea was that he would be the director and I would write the book to this musical. And she really did her job, Allison, and she got us over to Manhattan Theater Club, where I had no relationship at all. And they ended up producing this musical, and it didn't, it just somehow was rather disappointing. You know, it didn't quite work out. The critics were sort of mad for it, and it had problems. But I really hit it off with Lynn Meadow, the artistic director of Manhattan Theater Club. The opening night, she said to me, I would love to direct your next play here at Manhattan Theater Club. I thought, whoa, whoa, oh my God. And they're rather conservative theater. Yeah. And I thought, well, I don't think they're going to go for Vampire Lesbians Part 2 or me in a drag role. I had actually um, developed this character of a woman named Miriam Passman that I'd developed as a 10-minute solo piece as part of a longer solo show I did called Flipping My Wig at the WPA. And this character, Miriam Passman, was this raging New York frustrated housewife. Mm-hmm. And it was such an interesting character and very detailed of the sort of Upper West Side milieu. I had for a long time thought that I'd like to write a play around that lady. And when Lynn Meadow reached out to me, I thought, oh, this is a perfect opportunity because actually this character is basically an MTC subscriber. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
it was probably a greater part of a year I wrote the play and then and I'd seen while I was writing it I went to see an evening of one acts called Death Defying Acts that Linda Lavin was appearing in off Broadway and I thought oh well she is the perfect actress to play Marjorie and I didn't I never thought of it as a part I would play because I really was writing it for Manhattan Theater Club and, and I really wanted to see I'd written so many big roles for myself I really wanted to write a big big role for an older actress. I didn't think that actresses over 50 were really being given the opportunity beyond being the mother or yeah. the uh, real estate agent. I wanted to just write a huge comic part that just was so demanding. And in fact, it was so demanding that when we asked Linda Lavin to do it, she said, I don't think I want to work that hard. But then she, <laughs> she changed her mind. And I gave it to Lynn, this play, as soon as I finished it. And she said, well, let's do a reading right away. And she said, who would you like to play Marjorie? And I said, Linda Lavin. And so they sent it to her and she agreed to do, the, do this reading. And Oh, she was just, I've never seen, had an experience like this where an actress at a cold reading, just everything was there. It was just, yeah. it was the most perfect meeting of actress and, and role. So then she agreed to do it and they put it on their second stage and we got this perfect cast, Michelle Lee and oh, Penny Roberts and Anil Kumar and a wonderful old lady, Shore Bernheim to play the mother. Yeah. People just loved it, and immediately there were plans to move it to Broadway. Yeah, I think you're right about, the, I think the MTC subscribers saw themselves, because I yeah. remember seeing the invited dress in the little space, and mm -hmm. it was good, and it was funny, and we all went away delighted. But then I came back and watched the first actual performance with subscribers in it, mm -hmm. and it was like an entirely different show. They're screaming. Just the laughs and the people yeah. were beside themselves. We yeah. had thought, oh, this is really great. We loved it. It was fun to work on. But it was nothing like when that MTC audience, yeah. the main audience sat and watched it. They were seeing themselves because yeah. it was in some ways not satire, but part of the source of comedy was these women who don't really, I don't think really exist anymore. But these women who didn't pursue careers, but are losing themselves in their cultural interests and see everything. Mm -hmm. They're so culturally striving. Yeah. And then, of course, now, you know, with Mr. Sondheim dying this week, you know, he came to see it at Manhattan Theater Club and just loved it. And while we were in previews for the Broadway run, it coincided with Frank Rich doing a, a big interview with Sondheim in the Times Magazine section. I think it was Sondheim at 70. And in this story, he was quoted as saying, Frank Rich asked him, did he still go to the theater a lot? And Sondheim said something like, well, the tale of the elder's wife was the funniest evening I've ever had in theater. And so that came out in the article. And that certainly it was helpful. We started selling out in previews at the Barrymore Theater. I was so moved that on opening night, I was sitting in the afternoon in my apartment and, and a telegram arrived. I thought, telegram? Who the hell says, this is how it sends me a telegram? And I opened it up and it said, welcome to the big time, Steve Sondheim. Oh, how delightful and amazing. And also he who also wrote parts for women. Yes, um, yes. In the yes. same way. Yeah, but he had been so, it's come out so much, you know, over the last few days, just that almost as equal to this extraordinary achievements as a composer lyricist is his mentoring and enthusiasm for several generations yeah. of young theater people 
is almost as noteworthy yes. as achievements. His generosity. You know? I, yeah, I was saying to my boyfriend earlier today that everybody I know on social media, everybody has a note from Sondheim. If, yes. you, if you wrote him, I'm thinking, why didn't I write him? You should have. I've got 11 of them. I know, but you know, everybody's posting their notes, and he would just take a moment and write, thank you for your note, best yes, Steve. Yes. But even yeah. just that, acknowledging that somebody wrote a note to him yeah. is extraordinary. How he, got it, how he got all his work done, because he must have had an enormous <laughs> amount of correspondence every day to get through exactly. before he could actually sit down at the piano. Exactly. And I just, yeah, it's really something. I know everybody, it's, it's been fascinating, just all this, all the stories. My whole Facebook feed is just people sharing these stories. And I was kind of, I don't know, I thought, oh, I, I don't think I need to add my yeah. two cents to it but i guess it's part narcissism part, <laughs> part narcissism part gratitude yeah you know say yeah. oh me too i had 11 notes but it also makes those of us who work in the theater rethink our interactions like even today i had two young people write me about can they talk to me about a career in the theater and of course i always do those informational interviews but this particular week is very stressful and oh, I just, yeah. when i got the first one i thought oh no but you know when you think about <laughs> steven sondheim could take a moment and type a letter to a fan yeah. theater marketer should go ahead and do what you can <laughs> to encourage young people i know it makes you feel, it does make you feel sort of guilty that I, you know, <laughs> when i hear, read about all just i mean all the teaching he did i mean he really gave back constantly and oh god i lead such a selfish life i i, I have my doing project. master classes right at colleges occasionally occasionally yeah. not not that often but i don't know i've had a number of protégés who for instance carl yeah. andrus i met him at when he was 24 and encouraged him to be a director and i go one by one mm -hmm. but um nowhere near yeah the incredible generosity of spirit that this man had. I have one more question before we wrap up because I want to be respectful of your time. And my staff wrote this, my <laughs> staff wrote this one so because they're very fascinated by your love of movies, especially mm -hmm. the classics. So are there any classic movies that you would want to adapt or that you think would work well on a stage that haven't yet been adapted? Oh, gosh, I have all sorts of notes for plays I never actually wrote, just ideas of sometimes when I'm just in the dressing room with other actors doing a show, I just go off with flights of fantasy. Like, oh, we should do maybe like sort of How the West Was Won, a Western thing of I could play a young Irish servant girl who gets, <laughs> you know, goes West and is in a covered wagon. Yes, and, I know, would take so much money for and, that play. Say, oh, and Julie, Julie Hawson, you could be, and I start <laughs> going around the room, oh, you could be a, a beaver trapper from the Adirondacks. You know? <laughs> oh, and you could play this, and I enjoy it. And I guess I do love writing roles for people that I adore and thinking of fantasy roles that would make them feel good about themselves or that would like for instance when we were just starting out at the Limbo Lounge I hadn't known Julie that long but one of the things that bonded us when we were both adolescents we were just obsessed with anything to do with Maud London and the Beatles and Julie Christie and mm -hmm. anything to do with London in the 60s. So as a gift for Julie, I wrote a play for us to do 
there was a set, there was a, a spoof of Maud London 60s movies, and she got to be kind of a Julie Christie type girl. And mm-hmm. That was my gift for her. Ah. So I keep doing that. That's something that I, I can give personally that I, to a friend. Amazing. And of course, all your friends happen to be supremely talented. Well, that's important. That's really important. <laughs> I, you know, I, I remember one time going to see a young person's show, and it was very. It wasn't good, but I think I gave him. He really wanted a suggestion, and I said, "I think you need to hang out with more talented people, who you need to cultivate." Because sometimes I think when you're young and just starting out in show business, a lot of times people think, oh, it's who you know and it's important to have contacts through your family or something of famous people. But I'm sure that that does help you get in the door. It doesn't get you the job, but it gets you in. Mm-hmm. However, I, I think it's also important to surround yourself with talented peers and create together because often they'll bring you with them. Yeah. Sometimes they won't. Sometimes they, uh, I've heard those bad stories, uh-huh. but sometimes they do. And you continue to work with them and good things happen when you share a dream. It's not just personal, all by yourself in your room, wishing and hoping. Well, it has been such a dream to talk to you, Charles. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. And we're super, super excited to have you back in what we call Broadway's living room. You can catch Charles Bush at Feinstein's 54 Below with a special New Year's Eve performance on December 31st at 7 p.m. Charles, it's been so great. Thank you. It's been wonderful, Nella. You've been listening to the Feinstein's 54 Below podcast, part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.